Welcome to another episode of Nipe Story. This is a fortnightly podcast that brings you audio versions of short stories from Kenya and across the continent. I'm your host, Kevin Machiro. And on today's episode, we feature a fixed portrait smile by Joshua Marley. Jeff stretched his long legs as one would in a spasm of death. Suddenly, like a reptile whose sunbasking session had just been interrupted by a sudden sputtering of rainfall, he jacked himself up and uncoiled from his little bed. He'd been sleeping most part of the day, and now he had to get up and out of his unsightly, scruffy shack. He did this every day, unless something unusual interrupted his daily routine. He looked around the house and quickly shut his eyes, as if it hurt to look at the emptiness of his immediate world. There was nothing really to see. Or if there was anything, it hurt even more to look at what there was. Two aluminium saucepans, two cups he'd used as a student at college, a small plastic wash basin and a plastic jug, three glass plates that he treasured and protected jealously from breakage, all placed on a small wooden table. This formed the kitchen partition of his one-roomed hovel. Sitting up on his little bed, he looked up at his wardrobe on display, a sisal fiber rope on which he had piled up all his clothes. He painfully wondered when this sight would change and sighed in despair as he sprang to his feet. He now had to get out somehow to confront the world of women and children who just stared at him every time he emerged from his afternoon sessions of deep slumber. He carefully pushed open the blend of rusty tins that formed the door to his dingy hovel and squinted in the direction of the sun through an opening between two houses on the westerly side. One could easily think he depended on the sun for time more reliably than on his clock. He then picked up a synthetic fiber bathing sponge and a small recycled vegetable oil jerry can. The jerry can's yellow color had now started disappearing, giving way to a brown-black tinge that came from dirt and soot-clogged hands. With his faded pair of trousers on, he spread his legs apart and bent forward. Then, within intervals of scrubbing and sprinkling water out of the jerry can, he cleaned up his armpits. Sure that he had conducted a satisfactory hygienic feat, he picked up an old shirt from the clothesline and dried himself up. He then went to the house and brought out a can of fire body spray that his brother had left behind the last time he had visited him. He pointed the can's nozzle under his armpits that displayed tufts of rusty brown hair and made spraying gestures. A puffing sound did come out all right, but it was apparent there was nothing else that came out with the noise. The deodorant had long been used up, but Jeff had been doing this now for two months. What was characteristically strange, though, was the fact that he conducted this honorable activity outside his house. This would then be followed up by an animated rubbing of palms and tapping of cheeks. It was obviously an exercise of luxury and vanity that Jeff only aspired to, but relished nonetheless. He walked back into his room, brought down his jacket from a wooden hanger, and slipped his bony arms into it summarily bringing it to hang on his broad shoulders like it would on a mannequin. Thus dressed up, he pulled out a small carton box from under his bed and from it extracted a little pocket Bible which he stuffed into his inner jacket pocket. He always took his Bible with him. This did not mean that Jeff was a very pious man. In fact, he had never read a line from the aforementioned Bible since his aunt gave it to him. He was 17 then and she hoped reading the Bible would make him a good boy but he always took it along with him on his nocturnal sprees, which were mainly drinking at kilometer. 
It had saved him once when he ran into a police patrol. He told them he was returning from his gospel ministry. They let him go, asking him to pray for them. This had generated a good laugh when he got home. Jeff walked up Makerere Hill, avoiding as much as possible the route to Kilometre, or the church house, as they fondly called it. He had to be sure to reach Doctor's place before he came back to the ever-beckoning church house. He knew it was hard to avoid the involuntary urge to branch off to this place to join his mates once he set eye upon it. He walked with firm, anxious steps up the hill and to Sir Apollo Kagwa Road and thus vanquished the big temptation. He put his hand in the hind pocket of his trousers and brought out several coins which he counted carefully and nodded, assured that he had enough money for his fare to doctor's place. As he waited to cross the road, he witnessed a scene that was to be an object of both amusement and empathy. A speeding car had hit a muddy puddle on the potholed road and splashed its contents all over an old man who, with vain effort, was now cleaning his coat. The old man kept throwing up his arms while ejaculating a vociferation of profanities that made one think he had a sewage tank residing in his mouth. Onlookers just stared on helplessly as the old man went about his business. Just wait, you wait, my son will come back. My son bought for me this coat. My son with his money. This son of a pregnant pig, he has made it dirty. His father must have had trouble mating with the pig that produced him. You wait. My son will come back. England is not far. The way the old man spoke made one think his son was just nearby, and once he got back, the errant motorist would indeed be made to suffer. Jeff boarded the minibus taxi, and off it went, cranking down the road towards the public taxi park. He had taken a seat somewhere in the middle. The occupants of the taxi had somehow noticed the scene of disgrace involving the motorist and the poor old man. Several made observations regarding it, while some shook their heads in disbelief. There was, however, this fellow that sat behind Jeff on the very hind seat who decided to take the comments about the aforementioned scene a step further. That is what they do, these fellows. And that's not a car bought out of his sweat. If he had sweated, he would know what it feels like to experience what that old man is going through. That's what they do, all corrupt fellows. And they ask us to pay taxes. For what? The sulky bloke seemed to have caught the attention of everyone in the taxi. So he raised his voice, perhaps for a better elocutionary drive. I remember there was this minister. There was naked proof that he was corrupt. And what happened? The MPs, they sat, debated for weeks about whether he should be minister or not. The fellow was blocked. Some of us spent nights in pubs celebrating the return of justice and political sobriety. We knew people could be accountable for their deeds for once. But now look, the same fellow came back and was made minister. This is madness. No one said a word, though nearly everyone knew who was being talked about. Jeff turned uneasily in his seat. He had felt these things. They stung him up in the morning when he awoke. He went with them to bed. Now they seemed to sting him in public. He wished the chattering fellow would stop. He wanted to ask him to shut up. He was hurt by this talk. He was hurt by his state of joblessness. He was hurt by the lack of justice. But the fellow rumbled on. Look at me! Everyone turned to look at him, as though he were pointing at some conspicuous spot on him. They had seen him before, but now it seemed they were obeying his command. No, their emotions did. A wave of pain swept across the taxi as the man behind recounted his misery. Look at me. 
My father sold his land, the only thing he owned, to take me to university. But look, I have no job. They don't care. Their children get all the good jobs, even those with no papers. Look at this minister's son, the one with an airport on his head. The minister for employment. Yeah, that one. His son was in the same school with me. He never passed anything. The highest mark he ever scored was 30%, and that was in English. A teacher once asked him if he ever cared about his studies. He asked the teacher if he ever cared to change his profession and told him, my father could help you do that. He got expelled. His father came to school with him the next day and talked to the head teacher behind closed doors. The following week, the teacher who had secured the boy's expulsion received a letter of transfer to a war-torn area. We never heard of him again. Of course, the boy came back to the school and did what we used to call going through the course. And now I hear he's the district inspector of schools in charge of quality and standards monitoring. Everyone in the taxi chuckled bemusedly, except the passenger and Jeff. Pain was written all over their faces. A shade of pain covered their eyes. Jeff again turned uneasily and looked outside through the window. He now wanted to ask the man to stop. He opened his mouth, but a huge lump of pain choked him and soaked his voice. He fell back to silence, the one thing he had now become accustomed to. The taxi reached the police station just before the park and pulled to a sudden halt. A police officer had stopped it. He went to the driver's window. The driver pulled out his driving license. He fished something like a colored piece of paper out of his shirt pocket and quickly stuffed it in the license booklet. The officer turned away to study the license and nodded satisfactorily as he handed it back to the driver. Then he waved at the driver to drive on. At this juncture, everyone looked at the passenger on the hind seat with expectancy. He stared back at them, then, as if in a rapture, broke out loudly. Now why are you staring at me? You know that is corruption, and you want me to condemn it. Nonsense! That is not corruption. That's poverty. The poor policeman is miserably paid. He came for something to eat. Maybe there was no food at home. Corruption is what the big fellows do. If they cared, they would have thought about the poor policeman's pay. The man can barely earn enough to keep him in a Malwa drinking joint for four weekends. Malwa drinking joints were drinking places in slums where the low-income earners met to drink from the same pot of millet brew using siphons, both wooden and rubber. The relatively higher-income earners shunned such places for both hygienic and ostentatious reasons. The taxi was now entering the park, but the man on the hind seat did not show any hint of going quiet. Every time he opened his mouth, he seemed to speak with new momentum. It was as though each sentence fueled the power that brought out the successive sentence. Don't you remember the other time they spent two months in Parliament debating their salaries and allowances? Those MPs, church service allowance, entertainment allowance, holiday allowance, health club allowance, and yet some just keep extending the territories of their stomachs. School fees allowance, now you wonder what the fellow does with his actual salary if allowances cover all the costs of his life. And that poor policeman, his salary is 150,000 shillings, $50. His child must go to school. School fees is 300,000 shillings. How does he raise that money? The man works for more than 15 hours, the MP goes to Parliament for three hours, but dozes away for two hours. He only wakes up when he hears they're now discussing their allowances. The man was speaking so fast now, without a pause, asking no questions. He knew the taxi would soon reach the park, 
and he would have no audience. The other passengers seemed to have been taken up by the discourse. Each wore a look of entrancement in the world of disappointment and painful thoughts. The conductor had been listening too. When the taxi eventually stopped, he forgot to open the door to let the passengers out. A woman next to him tapped him. He turned with a start, then realized he was supposed to open the door. Everyone moved out of the taxi except Jeff, who remained in his position, deeply engrossed in excruciating thoughts. The man raised his voice to catch the attention of the now disembarking passengers. It was clear he had wished for a longer ride. Perhaps he now wished to follow up everyone and seek their audience, but he noticed Jeff was still in the taxi. He spoke. It was in a manner to arouse his attention. Man, have you ever thought about killing someone? Jeff jumped with a start. For all his consideration of the consequences of pain and misery, he had never contemplated this act. Now, it was as if the man had asked him to go and kill to solve his problems, and Jeff had gotten scared. He turned to look at the man behind him and then made a dash for the taxi door. The man stepped out too, in close pursuit, keen not to lose his last audience. He tapped on Jeff's shoulder and asked him what he does for a living. This question hurt. It was like asking a man in a famine-stricken area whether he had eaten or not, or worse, if he had considered eating as important. Jeff turned to him, now enraged by the man's constant pesky voice, and asked, Who are you? The man smiled, and in answer said, I can see we share the same problem. My name is Tabu. It means problems. I finished school five years ago. I am a graduate of law from Makerere University. I have no job. I live in a neglected slum in Boise. My neighbors who haven't gone to school think I am like them, not educated. Jeff shuddered with pain. This man, Tabu, did not know he was throwing corrosive salt particles to his wound. He had done it all the way to the park. Now he was doing it even more directly by referring to his very life experience. He looked at him and saw the pain of his life in his eyes. They spoke louder than his voice about the misery of joblessness. Jeff nodded in silence. He understood everything. He felt everything. It said it's hard for two people to feel the same thing or for a man to feel another's pain. Here was a case of uniformity of feeling. Jeff experienced Tabu's pain, not in compassion, no, not out of sympathy. It was because it was shared pain. It was his own pain. It was the pain of a man unable to help a brother out of thorns because he was in the same thorns. This was Tabu's pain. It was Jeff's pain. Jeff preferred his hand for a brotherly handshake with Tabu. He would have wished to make it a hearty handshake, but he lacked the power, the strength with which to do it. It was a weakness that emanated from within his heart. It spread through his nerves, through his shoulder, and sapped all the energy in the hand that now held frailly onto Tabu's. Their hands just locked into each other like some mechanical objects, lifeless. You are my brother. I'm Jeff. I too have a long story. But my story is your story. The only difference is you have a degree. I have a diploma in business studies. It's been no good. I've been through it all. This life. No job. Sometimes no food. He stopped suddenly. Speaking about it caused him even more pain. It was certainly very excruciating. It cut through his chest and subsided in his throat, 
almost asphyxiating him. This is why he had given to keeping mum. It was better to suffer in silence. Where are you going? asked Tabu. To see some doctor. Doctor is a friend of mine. He asked me to visit him every time I'm free. You see, doctor was my college teacher. I got to know him somehow. He always sympathized with me. He has always sought ways of helping me. I hope there is something good when I get to his place. And you? I'm going nowhere, really. I am supposed to meet up with some lawyer in town. He promised he will help me fix up somewhere in his farm. He keeps telling me to come and see him. But sometimes when I go to his office, the receptionist keeps me waiting for hours before I'm let in to see him. Oftentimes, by the time I get in, the man says he's been in court all day long and has to go home to have some rest. But man, you know, even in this profession of mine, people are not straightforward. We all take an oath upon graduation, but it's sheer public lies. Lies, lies, lies. Sheer stinking lies. This man is just a pain in the wrong place, thought Jeff. He never stops ranting about all these things. You may wonder how I know these things, began Tabu again. I am a lawyer, remember? Only I haven't got the opportunity to join the rot. Will you actually do those things when you get hired? Asked Jeff, agitated. Are you asking that? retorted Tabu. Everyone in a position of advantage in this country doesn't care what happens to the rest of you. I have suffered so long to care either. It's a man-eat-man society. Everything has gone to the dogs. Even the values that many leaders keep singing about, they don't exist. Have you heard of a whole nation going to hell? That's where we are headed. And I know I have my place there already. Booked full board. Jeff knew the situation was bad, but he didn't think it was as bad as this fellow was painting it. He had never heard of such despair, such sheer collapse of humanity and indifference. It was too much to bear. He still had some hope in humanity. He still had some hope in his country. He still hoped its leaders would change, or at least there would come better leaders. Accustomed to nothing else, he only hoped. Hope created a way where there was none. Yes, hope. This man was trying to kill the only thing that was left in him, and he wouldn't let him do it. He was now determined to deny him any more audience. He had to walk away from his short-time acquaintance, Mr. Tabu. He looked at the city clock and at the horizon to see where the sun was. It was getting really late, and he had spent most of his time now listening to this man, and he was now angry with himself for allowing him to rant in his ears and all. He had to go. Mr. Did you say your name was Tabu? Yeah, Mr. Tabu or whatever it is. I must go now. Good luck with your lawyer friend. Oh, good luck too, my friend. But before you go, I was asking, I was wondering. It was normal for someone who wanted to ask for a favor to start expressing themselves that way, stating things they wanted to do presently in the present tense. But Jeff didn't think this man could be preparing to do that with him. He knew his state spoke for itself. But he was wrong. Uh, I was wondering if you could help me with 1,000, I mean a 1,000 shillings for transport back home. See, I don't have anything. Uh, I'll have to walk back home if I don't get anything from the lawyer. That stung Jeff even more painfully. How could this man be asking him to give him money, yet he had very little left, just enough to take him to doctors and back home? No, this man was not the right person for him to be talking to. He had to rid himself of him immediately. He turned and just hurried away without uttering another word. The man's voice haunted him 
as he made his way through the crowded Luom Street. Twice he glanced over his shoulder just in case the man was following him. He started when he saw a man wearing a blue shirt like Tabu's. But upon second scrutiny, he realized he was wrong. It was a different person altogether. He sighed, a huge sigh of relief. He had one problem less that evening. Tabu was like a bad apparition that had stepped in his way that evening. He now wondered if his encountering Tabu was a bad omen, a precursor to a fruitless evening meeting with Doctor. After all, Tabu meant problems. Dr. Wandera, or Doctor as close friends fondly called him, was a very kind and principled man, or well, that's how Jeff remembered him. He had taught Jeff at college and knew his abilities so well. Jeff was, after all, his best student in his year. He had high hopes, high expectations about his future. He had always encouraged him to pursue his dream with a sober mind. Jeff wondered what he would think of him that evening as he had long been out of school, without a job and with nothing to call his own. Would he consider him a part of the statistics of failure? Would he look at him the same way again? But Jeff chose to still go to Doctor's place. He knew Doctor was his last center of hope. He didn't have much hope in anything else. He knew that the best thing was to get to Doctor's house and try and chart the way into his future from there. Nothing else mattered at this time, not even the embarrassment of appearing in a miserable state. Nothing else was as embarrassing as living a life that didn't show or promise much. The minibus that he took to Doctor's place pulled to a stop at a stage in disarray. People were struggling to get in as those who had reached the destination tried to make their way out. Jeff finally did. At least this had not been as noisy and as painful as the journey from his house to the city centre. He preferred it when no one reminded him of the pain in his heart. He would rather deal with the shoving in this minibus at that bus stop. A huge German shepherd was the first living creature he encountered when he opened the gate to Doctor's place. He had not prepared himself for this kind of welcome, but now here he was, face to face with this canine creature that seemed all ready to pounce on him, as if to announce to him that he had come to the wrong place. He was an unwanted person here. He had always been an unwanted person, or so he felt. Now this seemed the case with this fierce-looking hound. The hound came closer to him with more determined urgency. Jeff retracted a few steps backwards. He knew any time the hound would pounce. He perspired profusely as a pig would on a hot tropical day. His heart raced with fear. It was the fear of being humiliated by this irrational creature who didn't understand the purpose of his visit. It was the fear of this creature who didn't understand that he was an innocent, bottom-of-the-class person who probably shared a destiny with him. If only he had known that he had sometimes been treated like a worthless dog, perhaps this hound would have backed off. He would have preferred instead to befriend him. But now, in a matter of seconds, this was an unlikely reality. Jeff now resigned himself to being mauled by this monster of a dog. This was a wild creature in the wrong place. It wasn't man's best friend, for he would have seen, at least, that Jeff was not so far in stature from him. They were both mere dogs who served man as he pleased, only one was domesticated, kept by man in his surroundings, and the other supposedly free, but suffering a different domestication nonetheless. 
It was the domestication of the constant indigence that kept him in eternal vulnerability to be used by politicians and be forgotten until five years later when they return with vote-wooing bones to buy some loyalty. Jeff often felt this was cheap loyalty, but only several weeks or months, even years after the elections were done. But there was no time now for all these thoughts to run through his mind. Something had to happen in a snap of a moment to rescue him from the immediate danger and humiliation that confronted him. The dog hopped on its hinds, stretching full length to Jeff's height. Jeff trembled with fear. He let out first a helpless whimper before breaking in a painful screech. The hound had dug its claws into his chest and was about to do more damage when suddenly Patrick, doctor's houseboy, had emerged from the house and shouted in panic. A few giggly sounds did come from inside the house before they faded into cautious whispers. They were doctor's children. At first they had been enthralled by the scene they had just witnessed outside their house through the window. They had wished the hound could do something to continue the plot of that short drama which they had been following animatedly. They didn't think about its likely consequences on Jeff, who they had viewed as an intruder. The hound ran to Patrick, who then leashed him and led him to his kennel. Jeff sighed deeply, a huge sigh of relief, nay, redemption. He was thrown into a trance for a moment. Everything had happened so fast for his comprehension, the attack and the redemption, and yet the effects had been devastating. He made a quick visual sweep around him, the best of his reflex taking charge, as he readied himself for flight or fight in case another ferocious dog emerged to launch a similar attack. A repeat of that scene would be traumatizing. He then took another, more worried look at what remained of his shirt and his valuable pair of trousers. As the hound had dug its claws into his chest, it had come down with a sizable part of his shirt and left two fabric straps hanging awkwardly down his belly. He knew the shirt was gone. He thought about the sacrifice he had made to buy this shirt, the single shirt he had always reserved for special occasions, like this one when he had an important meeting with Doctor. He now thought about the ridiculous look he struck in the tatters that remained of that shirt. He felt naked. The vicious hound, he thought, had exposed him in every sense. It was the vulnerability of a man whose meager means had failed to save him from even a dog. Patrick re-emerged from the kennel where he had tethered the dog, to find Jeff still standing where he had left him, quivering. He observed him briefly and shook his head as if in disapproval, only Jeff didn't know of what. He went to Jeff and proffered his hand to shake his. Uh, I'm Patrick. I work here. Sorry about what happened. I wish I could stop the dog sooner. Are you badly hurt? Not really said Jeff awkwardly, not knowing what exactly to say. Of course he was hurt, but what difference would it make to tell the truth to anyone? He was used to people not being good to him, showing any commiserations or doing him any favours. His was a world of tough survival. But he noticed something about Patrick. In his eyes, he saw a man whose plight was not so different from his. My name is Jeff. Doctor was my lecturer at college. Is he around? No, he's not around, but he should be coming in soon, said Patrick, determined to be nice to determined to be nice to Jeff. Do you need him urgently? Not really. Yes, yes. Yes, yes, said Jeff, stuttering again. 
The dog ordeal was still working its utmost devastation on his emotional and mental faculties. Okay, as soon as he comes in, you will know, said Patrick. Meanwhile, you may go and sit on that bench out there. Pointing to a bench that had its base rooted in the ground outside Doctor's house. Jeff lumbered towards the bench and brought his battered body down to it, the hard wooden surface pressing painfully against his buttocks. But it was relieving to eventually sit down as the encounter with the canine had sapped all the energy out of him. He looked at Patrick from that position again and felt a tinge of love that he found queer. He let his brain sink into deep cogitation and felt the world wasn't full of only evil and nagging people after all. He thought about Doctor, the man he was now waiting for. He had always known him to be a good man. It was now hard to make a blanket classification of all people as evil. He looked at the bench on which he was sitting and wondered why he had not been asked to go into the house and wait from there. He felt a bit isolated, like the unwelcome man he had first felt he was when the hound accosted him. He surveyed his environs, his eyes darting across the compound uneasily. They settled on a portrait on the tree under which he was sitting, much to his bewilderment. Not believing what his eyes had beheld, he closed them, rubbed the lids with the back of his hand and squinted through them as he came to terms with a new reality. The portrait that he was gaping at was Doctor's, and the inscription therein referred to the same doctor. Vote Dr. Wandera, MP for Nakawa. Your choice for service beyond self. Elections were approaching, and people had started declaring their intentions to stand for elective positions. But the one man he had not expected to be among those people was Doctor. Doctor had always proclaimed his disavowal for politicians and politics. In class, as he taught, he constantly referred to politicians as people who, guided by greed, had developed immunity to shame and let themselves sink into moral decadence and nakedness. He had always said he would never join politics just to make sure he didn't make up the statistics of the morally corrupt and that he had better stations in which to serve his beloved country. Jeff studied the portrait again looking at the empty smile that reminded him of a poem he had once read in school by a Nigerian writer, Gabriel Okara. The fixed portrait smile was not a lie, he thought. That scared him quite a bit. But even with this new insight, he refused to think anything could have happened to change Doctor's principles. He preferred instead to think of him as maybe one of those people joining politics to change things. As he sat there engrossed in these thoughts, Patrick came back and seeing him staring at the portrait, declared, Boss is going to be a big honorable. The president already promised him to be a minister if he wins. Maybe you'll be part of his campaign. And sorry about your shirt. I'm sure boss will give you one of his campaign t-shirts. As Patrick uttered those words, Jeff's eyes moved back to the last three words of the slogan on the portrait, Service Beyond Self. Those words rang in his mind that night as he made the long, draining journey back to his hovel, having failed to see Doctor. After hours of waiting, Patrick had told him that Doctor was probably out drinking with his peers. As he fell asleep, he saw it again. The campaign poster. The fixed portrait smile. But it was different. It was now his own. He awoke with a start. Terrified. Sweating disorientated, distressed. <laughs>
A Fixed Portrait Smile was read to you by Tommy Oladipo and written by Joshua Marley. Joshua is the author of The Bad Friends, a book that was written in 2003, and a play, The Betrothal, that was staged for the first time in Kampala in August of this year. Joshua is currently working on a novel, three short stories, and a poetry anthology. And uh, he also voiced the episode that featured last night in Asaba. Clearly, he is a man of many talents. Nipe Story is available to download wherever you get your podcast from. We're constantly looking for short stories of between 750 to 4,000 words. So email your stories to producer at fingerpiano.co.ke if you'd like to submit your short story for consideration. Tell your friends about Nipe Story. You can also follow us here on SoundCloud and on Facebook where Nipe Story and on Twitter our handle is at Nipe underscore story. Nipe Story is a finger piano production.